Sometimes I think awards are silly and isolating and they create this internal hierarchy within the craft that there's just no need for. But one thing I'll say that's good about them is they create this little pocket of space to dream. Like whether or not I actually won the award, what it did was it allowed me to sit down for a day and just say, what would I do if I had this money? Like what's the most important thing I could do right now for my field and for my friends and for my community? Hello and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, which is brought to you by the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we'll be spending time with woodworker and furniture maker Aspen Golan. Aspen trained at the renowned North Bennett Street School in Boston, and she specializes in building furniture with the techniques of 18th and 19th century American fine woodworking. But her pieces aren't just modern iterations of a centuries-old tradition. They also often exhibit very modern feminist touches that acknowledge and subvert the power and function of furniture, which was traditionally made by men, that's created for domestic spaces, historically the domain of women. Aspen's work has earned her the admiration of the arts and crafts establishment. Her work has been featured in American Craft Magazine, Fine Woodworking Magazine, and Architectural Digest. In 2020, she was the recipient of the Minnick Furniture Fellowship from the Society of Arts and Crafts, and this year the Maxwell Hanran Foundation gave her one of its prestigious awards in craft, a $100,000 unrestricted gift. She teaches at the Rhode Island School of Design and in national and international craft workshops. Three years ago, thanks in part to the Minrec Fellowship she'd received, Aspen created the Chairmaker's Toolbox, a project that provides free tools, education, and mentorship for BIPOC, gender-expansive, and female chair and toolmakers seeking to build sustainable businesses. Aspen spoke to me from her home in New Hampshire. I asked her to take us back to her origin story when she decided to become a woodworker. You know, it's so funny. Like, I wanted to be a fine artist for a long time because I went, I was very lucky and got to go to a super artsy high school that had a really powerful program. And, um, you know, they were all about conceptual art, drawing, painting, sculpture, pure fine art, essentially. And I was always like, fighting the fact that my favorite part of the process was so crafty, you know, it was the part where I just already knew what I was doing. And I was just lost in the process of doing it. I felt like a fraud for a long time, or like a lesser, you know, a lesser maker, a lesser creator for that reason. And I tried to be an artist forever and ever and ever. And then finally, was just like, the thing that drives me, like the thing that gets me into the studio is this weird balance between rules and no rules. It's not no rules. It's the tension there. I remember realizing at one point that I play much more bravely in like a fenced area. If you give me a space that's mine to explore, then I'm wild. But if there's no boundary, then I get quite timid. And I think a lot of people do, you know, the fear of the blank canvas, right? Sure. The fear of the. And so with furniture, there's no blank canvas, there's never a blank canvas. There's always something to push up against. Like you're looking at a chair. The thing you're pushing up against is the human body. 
right? Like the final reality of that object is that a person is going to sit in it. And so there are all of these functional restrictions that come up as a result of the fact that that's what that thing is destined to be. And so then me as a maker, I get to walk into that fenced yard, like that space where there's rules, but not so many, but just enough that it ignites me. You know, I'm frustrated at times it took so long, but mostly I'm just thrilled that I got to the point where I stopped berating myself for not being the type of artist that I thought was best or that I most wanted to be as a kid and instead just sort of embraced the type of artist that I am, made space for it, did it. And then because it is so much more in alignment with who I am, I got so much better at it than I would ever have gotten at fine art because I love doing this. So I go to the studio every day. That's what I mean by the luck of the draw in terms of the getting a chance to be exposed enough times to the thing that you most that most aligns with your own capacities that it becomes possible to do it and build that architecture around it and i had many exposures to wood and i rejected most of them <laughs> and it finally happened at the end i i ended up enrolled in a sculpture class i transferred colleges and I really wanted to take an art class because I knew it was going to be miserably emotional to be tra a transfer student. And I was like, I got to at least have an art class. But because I was transferring, I, I had last dibs on art and all the drawing and painting was full. And so I had to take the only art class left, which was called Art with a Function. And it was essentially a furniture building class. And I took it and I hated it for like the first two days and I dropped it. And then I realized I can't do this first semester in a new place without some form of art. So I came back and re-enrolled and that class changed my life and that instructor changed my life. You know, I mean, it still took me years to then go back and become a furniture maker. That's like another level, right? Exposure to the thing and realizing you love it is one thing, but then having faith that you could actually place your creativity, your joy, your playfulness, like at the center of the thing that creates fiscal stability in your life, like that is a whole nother leap that took me a very long time to make. To pick up your metaphor of the fence, when you decide to really become educated in woodworking and the classical methods of woodworking, you entered the fence of school mm -hmm. with, with a lot of rules, I imagine. What was that like for you? Were you because you were 29 or 30, were you, were you on the older end? Were, you, were there mm -hmm. other women, other queer women there? What, what, how were you approached by teachers? Yeah, talk about that experience. Mm. Well, I mean, I think that it should be acknowledged the type of school that I wanted to go to was like, essentially, I had all of these wacky ideas about work that I wanted to make, but no practical knowledge of how to make them, right? Because that Art with a Function class was essentially a sculpture course. You know, we didn't do any furniture joinery. We used plywood. We didn't use any um, hardwoods, like I just didn't know, didn't know how to do anything. And so my goal was not to go to one of these sort of well-rounded programs that teaches design and making at the same time. I just wanted to learn how, that's all. So I wanted a school that was essentially devoid of design work and exclusively, I'm like, if I'm going to take a break from my cool functional life and invest in some in another educational experience, I want it to be just how. I'm like, this is what I'm hungry for. And so I went to this school called the North Bennett Street School. That's the oldest industrial school in the United States. They have a bunch of programs. They have locksmithing, preservation carpentry, violin making, bookbinding, all this wild stuff, and furniture. 
And the furniture that they make is all super traditional, um, seven, you know, six, I guess 17th to 19th century American and British furniture. So Chippendale, Sheridan, you know, you would know it when you see it. You're like the old stuff in, you know, my wealthy grandmother's house or something like that, or things that you see ripoffs of in thrift stores. Basically, the least appealing aesthetically type of work <laughs> in this era. But when I went and visited, what I saw when I looked at that stuff, all I saw was like brush strokes. I'm like, these are just, I, I just saw curves. I'm like, ooh, if I could make that curve, I could do whatever I wanted. Ooh, if I could make that leaf. Oh. If you like fracture that leaf and like look at it, this little carved leaf, a carved acanthus leaf, you could start seeing it as instead just a series of cuts. I was like, oh my God, I'm seeing all of these skills that I want to be able to wield in my life. And so, yeah, I enrolled there even knowing that, to answer your question, it was going to be a really isolating experience, you know, and I think that 30 was pretty much the, the youngest I could have gone and really um, stuck with it because it was, you know, it was hard. Like my cohort, I was, yeah, I was actually the youngest in my cohort and only woman, only queer person. There was uh, two other women in the program when I was there, um, and one of them was queer, and they're actually a very good friend of mine now. We work together quite a bit. It was very isolating, very strange. The instructors were all very sweet with me. I really, full endorsement to the North Bennett Street School, but the experience was just so deeply isolating and strange. And I think one of the weirdest things is like before enrolling in that school, I mean, I knew I was a woman, I identify as a woman, but I never thought about it. You know, nobody when I was a high, I taught high school for seven years and no one when I was a high school teacher said, wow, you're a female high school teacher, you know, it just didn't come up, you know, and then I start woodworking and all of a sudden I'm a female woodworker. I'm a woman woodworker. Like being a woman is now something that I'm told I am every day and something that I start feeling in a very intimate and intense way that I had never felt it before. It's just not a ver it's not an aspect of my personality that felt particularly important. And so it was the most bizarre thing ever to suddenly enroll in this school and be like, oh, you're a girl. <laughs> and it's it's been that way ever since I've, you know, been a woodworker. You know, I, I don't think there's been an article about me or a client who's purchased work who hasn't said something about it. So yeah, it starts to become part of your identity in a way that it wasn't. You know, it's it's a highly contextual thing. And people often ask me, like, what does it mean to you to be a female woodworker? And I'm like, well, a lot of things now, you know, but I, I am honestly still surprised sometimes when I think about it and recognizing that it's as fair to ask, what does it feel like to be a male woodworker, you know, and trying to understand the way that gender plays a role if you're marginalized or if you're in the majority. It's just a very interesting thing. These are issues you actually bring up in your furniture, in the pieces that you make. You explore these <laughs> themes of gender, queerness, power, history. So at what point, once you had learned all the rules mm -hmm. of making furniture the traditional way, at what point all did you- rules. All the rules. <laughs> I'll never know all the rules. <laughs> Some fundamental rules, let's say. At what point did you feel, A, that you could start- putting conceptual ideas into what you're making and B, maybe start making up your own rules or breaking what you had learned? Mm. 
Well, you know, I started creeping in really early. It's a great question. You know, I, I think when I first enrolled at North Bennett, I made a promise to myself. I'm like, this is like someone who loves dancing, going to the gym for two years. And I was like, the goal here is not to do the thing you love. It's to get really good at certain things that are going to allow you to do the thing you love at a way higher level. So I was like, don't dance, just work out. And that being said, like, I couldn't do it. Like, I couldn't keep myself from like dancing a bit, even when I was at school. And I think that my work and like the way that I was bringing in femininity and queerness ended up being like one of my coping mechanisms for getting through the experience of my schooling. And it continues to be a coping mechanism that I use to get through the experience of being an underrepresented person in my field. What do you think are the main barriers that make it difficult for an underrepresented person to to feel at home in woodworking? Obviously, it's a highly personal experience. But if I'm going to pull some through lines, I would say community, access to safe workspaces. So spaces where you can show up as your full self and feel safe. Community would be a step further. So access to spaces where you can show up be your full and authentic self and find other people who share your experience also working actively in that field. You know, in addition to all of the barriers that everybody experiences when they try to make furniture, which is honestly a very dumb thing to try to do. Like, it's just awful. Why? Why? Oh my God. Just the amount of, like, when I think about my friends who are jewelers, their full active professional studio space can be the size of a small bedroom. You know, I remember asking about a certain piece of casting equipment, like, ooh, what would it cost to get this? And my friend was like, oh, 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 it's actually really expensive. Probably shouldn't fall in love with that. And I'm like, just what is it? And she said it was 7000 And I just laughed because, you know, one machine in a woodworking space is 7000 or more. And then on top of that, the footprint of a machine shop is enormous, like for a functional machine shop. So not only are you paying you know, 10 grand or 15 for the machine, you're also going to pay for the footprint of that machine in a space connected to the amount of power it needs to dust collection, to light, to heat, to all of this stuff for the entire time you own it, whether you're making work with it or not. And not only does it need its space, it also needs an enormous amount of space around it so that you can feed boards in and out and you can move through it with your big pieces and da da da. And then when you do finish the work, it's enormously expensive to get it anywhere. You got to build crates and put it on trains. And I, you know, I watch my friends again who are jewelers. They're the ones I'm most jealous of. You know, put fifty thousand dollars worth of finished work in a rolling backpack and take it to a craft show. You know, it's just or like the shipping on a twenty thousand dollar ring would still only be you know, 50 bucks with with all the insurance. So I just am like, God damn, I've furniture. It's not a smart thing to do. And so I think that all of the essential barriers to the field apply to everyone, obviously. But then in addition to that, you have the challenge of not seeing yourself represented of basically the thing that kept me out until I was 30. And I identify as cisgender. I'm white. Like there are a lot of things that could make me feel even more distant from and isolated from the field of woodworking than just being female and queer. And so when I imagine what I had to overcome in order to visualize myself as a furniture maker, 
you can just imagine the number of barriers that other people have to overcome in order to even imagine that that's something they wanted to try. Then you add all of the challenges of finding community, finding safe spaces to all of the inherent challenges of the field, and you have a real tough situation. <laughs> so, so yeah, so how tell tell me how you dis why how you decided to help people knock down those barriers and how your creation, the chairmaker's toolbox, goes about knocking them down. Well, okay, so addressing that specific problem of like the physical space and the community, I started making Windsor chairs, which is a really specific, not style, but process of, of furniture making that is entirely hand tools. So say goodbye to your $15,000 machines and their giant space around them and the dust collection and the lights and say hello to a thing called a travisher and a draw knife, which are all things you could fit in a rolling backpack. And then also like the accessibility of the materials in terms of, you know, being able to buy wood at a lumberyard and then rehydrate it, split it and rehydrate it and then treat it like green wood or fallen branches or trees that are cut down. As long as you know what you're looking for, you can find stuff for basically nothing or nothing. If you know how to process it and you know what you're looking for. Windsor chairs are also one of the few furniture forms that don't require years of practice on the essential skills before you can start designing. You know, it takes years of practice to become a professional Windsor chair maker, no question. However, the threshold for designing your own work is way lower. So I can teach a class for just a few days and people are already making work that I've never seen before using these techniques. And so for me, when I started making Windsor chairs, I felt free because I was like, oh, I actually don't need to find a shop that I feel safe and comfortable in. I can just do this in my backyard. You know, I, I ended up finding a shop I feel safe and comfortable in, but knowing that I didn't need to, that there was a way I could keep doing this work without having to, you know, basically put up a shield and go into a space that I didn't want to be in to do this challenging work made it so that I was like, okay, well, regardless of what happens, I can be a furniture maker. I just might have to engage with the form a little differently than I anticipated. And so seeing that and then starting to recognize, I'm like, actually, this is a way freer and more empowering form of making for somebody who doesn't have access in the traditional sense of the word. And so when there's this amazing award, it's actually coming up if you're an early and career furniture maker. Um, the deadline for the application is September 8th. Um, and it's called the Minic, and it's this $25,000 unrestricted grant that goes to an early, one early and career furniture maker every year in the United States. And I won it in 2020. It was one of those things that I don't think I would have dreamed up the Chairmaker's Toolbox. I think I would have just built chairs with my friends and tried to teach people as I could. But then the existence, sometimes I think awards are silly and isolating and they create this internal hierarchy within the craft that there's just no need for. But one thing I'll say that's good about them is they create this little pocket of space to dream. Like whether or not I actually won the award, what it did was it allowed me to sit down for a day and just say, what would I do if I had this money? Like what's the most important thing I could do right now for my field and for my friends and for my community? And I let myself get like kind of mad in a in a productive way, in the way that, you know, you don't have time to get angry when you're just trying to live, you know, you're trying to survive. 
And so I sat down and I was like, what is wrong with this field? What hurts? What have I grown to tolerate, but that I shouldn't have to? And I started thinking about these types of access. And so I came up with this idea um, called the Chairmakers Toolbox. And it's a three-part project. And so it attacks equity and inclusion from a lot of different angles. And one of them is free classes. You know, that's probably the easiest one to understand, just free classes. <laughs> and so we have um, chairmakers all over the country who donate their time to teach these classes. And we're going to be shifting our focus from those established chairmakers to um, up and coming chairmakers who we can invest in as a teaching cohort to try to teach them to teach and create oh, space for them right. to get the reason. Yeah. And so this happens so, all over the country. Yeah. And we're actually going international this year. So we'll be in England and Australia this year too. And then the other part, uh, one of the other parts is called the toolbox. And that's where we partner with uh, metal workers who have the capacity to make these really weird hand tools that you need for Windsor chair making. And we give them, connect them with mentors who can support their tool making process. And they pick a tool that's used in the Windsor chair process and that is needed on the market. Like a fro. Good luck finding a fro, man. It's a thing that splits wood in a very um, specific way. It rives wood so that you can move it from a log to something that you can actually work with, you know, with your hands. So we basically say these are tools that there's a great need for in this community. And you, metal worker, may not know that because why would you? Because you don't make these dorky old chairs. So we work with metal workers who are from historically excluded backgrounds and give them an opportunity if they want it to design and produce a tool that's a very high level for Windsor chair making, which I love because while scholarships are great, they're like this one time access, you know, a ticket for one week of getting to participate. Whereas what the makers who are part of the toolbox do is they create a tool that gives them access, paid access to this field forever if they want it, you know, so rather than people granting them space, they've earned it, they're, they're taking it, and people are paying them for it. Kelly Harris, who made a um, tapering plane, which cuts angled tenons on legs, she has over a year long wait list, and she just launched her tool two months ago. <gasps> really? Yeah, That's there's, there's a there's a lot of demand for these weird tools. <laughs> and then the last part is so super easy to explain. It's just we we collect um, tools from people who are retiring from the craft or who um, have more than they need and then redistribute them to um, people who, who need tools. Because it must be terrifically expensive, right, to yeah. create your studio. How long it did it is. take you? Because you have a story about how you got your tools, right? It's true. And actually, that story is what started the Living Tools Project, which was, so I started Windsor Chairmaking sort of against my better judgment. You know, I just fell in love with the process and was like, well, I guess I have to do this now. I took, you know, one class and was was hooked. And so I made like a five-year plan to buy the hand tools that I needed. And, you know, that sounds like a long time, but just to put it into context, you know, there's a 20 year plan to buy all of the machines that I would need in order to be a traditional cabinet maker. And so five years is affordable, especially on a, on a chair maker's salary, right? It takes time to save the money for that kind of thing. And I was um, working in my mentor shop 
you know, for a week. I had I'd come to visit. I think I was assisting a class and um, a student of his called. He was entering hospice and he wanted his chair tools to go to somebody who would use them. And, you know, he yelled across the shop at me, hey, you want some chair tools? And I was like, absolutely. And, um, you know, two days later, I didn't think about it, you know, because some chair tools, what does that mean? But two days later, a box arrived with every tool I would need to be a chair maker and not just any tool, but like the best version of each one. And I just, I mean, I still get, I'm tearing. So that's five years compressed into a box one afternoon. Yeah. Wow. You know, I just, you open it up and it's like, this is a life for me now that I didn't have before. I had to wait on that life for five years because I had to go to other people's shops to use their tools because I didn't have my own. And then I opened up this box and here it is. And so I immediately called um, the donor and thanked him and then found myself promising. I was like, I will never sell these. I promise to keep them as a collection and I will give them away when I can't use them anymore just to honor the act of generosity of just wanting someone to have them who would use them. And so that's the one rule of the Living Tools Project is that if you receive tools from us, you can't sell them. You have to give them away as a way to um, just perpetuate that act of generosity throughout generations. So once a tool enters the Living Tools Project, it theoretically stays there forever. So if people make a donation of tools, they are now donated tools in perpetuity. Well, how do you think the field of contemporary woodworking would change if it were more diverse? Oof. That's the dream, right? Is to see it radically change in exactly that way. I mean, I think that you'd start seeing a lot of a lot of rewriting of histories and that's already happening. You know, there's a lot of Basically, the field of furniture was and craft was more diverse, and it has become less so. And also the way it was recorded was recorded only from a very white and male perspective. And so people were written out of it who were in it before. So in some ways, I'm like, first, we have to reclaim the history of this field as it actually was before we can even move forward. folks who were making work back in the day, you know, I mean, they came from all different backgrounds. I think at the turn of the century, over 60% of the craft maker force was black in the United States, you know, and that's not the way it is now. And it's not the way it was recorded, you know, so a lot of the furniture that we associate with, you know, white culture, because it was in the houses of wealthy white people was not made by wealthy white people. The act of making has been erased and who the makers were and whose hands produced these objects. Then you have something like chair making, the type of chair making that I'm teaching, which was like vernacular furniture. Farmers made it. They were made out of roots and sticks and whatever they had. And so a lot of that work is simply lost. It's just gone because it wasn't preserved in museums, because it wasn't seen as an important part of history. Like what gets preserved is as much a reflection of the culture as what is made. And so there's only pieces of history that we still have. So anyway, how I imagine it changing if it became more diverse is, you know, it's all, it's impossible to imagine because of the innumerable ways that people are silenced and excluded at this time but craft design would become immensely more 
I think playful, joyful, smart, the more minds that you apply to an object and a process, the better it gets. Like I think of a lot of furniture processes, they weren't invented by a single person. It's more like a stone in a river that gets worn down, you know, to its like simplest, best shape for its context. And so these processes that, you know, I've been taught and that I teach, they were refined by hundreds of thousands of people practicing this form and finding slightly better ways to do it over time. And so if you open that up and you actually give people access, you allow people to move into spaces that feel authentic for them and processes that feel authentic for them, you suddenly start seeing better, smarter ways of doing what we're already doing, plus entirely new forms that we haven't even imagined because we haven't let people manifest themselves, their cultures, their histories in woodwork. So I can't wait to see it. If you'd like to learn more about Aspen and read a longer version of this interview, just head to uncsa.edu slash art restart. And if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to share it. And if you know an artist changemaker you think we should profile, find me on Instagram at PC Talenti and let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>